Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. Mike Lawson, Dan Lust. We are back on Conduct Detrimental. Mike, how was the first week of the NFL for you? I have three fantasy leagues and I went one and two. Interesting. Um, I have a feeling that, Mike, you and I played in fantasy this weekend. Was one of those two losses from yours truly? One of those two losses was from you, yes. Uh, I believe you had you edged me out by nine points. Nine points is a lot. Nine points is 90 yards. It's a touchdown and a little bit more. Mike, let's relax. We started for the first time this year. We did a we did a March Madness for Conor Ketchmantos. We had some fun. And then this year we did a fantasy football league. So our own Stephanie Weisenberger is the commish. We did a the snake draft, even though I wanted to do the auction, I think my guy might have the best team. Pat Mahomes, I'm um, looking pretty pretty solid, Mike. You're my I was, the, I was the 12th pick in that snake draft, which you, you hit two took, right away, but I'm like, uh. Mike, you took, looks like Dalvin Cook and Joe Mixon. Not bad picks, but uh, at least for this week, they were scared to come out against yours truly. Not a whomping, but it was a, it was a nice beat. But Mike, there will be other weeks, just not against me. We had the week one of the NFL season, week two of the college football season upsets galore. We are going to talk a little college sports in this episode. We have a guest this week, Josh Gerben, who has been on the show with us in the past talking sports intellectual property. We're going to discuss that interesting Luka Doncic versus his mom lawsuit, which went probably viral for uh, the legal reason. And then the the reason that I guess Luca's mom is, uh, is attractive. That was a, a comment that was in my comments a lot. So we're going to talk about all things Luca, which we don't really get a chance to talk IP that much on the podcast. And then, Mike, we're going to talk about the biggest news in basketball, the Robert Sarver one-year suspension from the Phoenix Suns and the Phoenix Mercury. It's a story that we covered almost a year ago today. We're going to cover that. Minor League Baseball, we have another update on that front. Uh, and last but not least, my Nebraska Cornhuskers in the sports law news. So we're going to talk about that. But before we get into the action on Robert Sarver, a reminder, our podcast is sponsored by Themis Bar Review, top bar prep company in the galaxy. If you have not signed up for Themis, I don't know what you're waiting for. We can keep talking about Themis all that we want, but they are, you know, they're the best. You can say, hey, uh, there's another bar prep company that I use that my other friends talk about. But those friends don't have a sports law podcast. Those friends are not in your ear once a week. Those friends know less about Themis than we do. Just trust us. Themis is the best. Stephanie used Themis. Taryn used Themis. Jason used Themis. Our entire team of Conic Detrimental, since we have signed up with Themis, has used Themis. And no complaints over here. So... With that said, let us jump right into the topics. Mike, you want to kick us off with Robert Sarver and the Phoenix Suns? This was something we talked about last year. I mean, if anybody's been following this, ESPN posted an article about these allegations regarding Robert Sarver and his ownership. So let's let's take a step back. Who is Robert Sarver? He owns the Phoenix Suns and the Phoenix Mercury, the NBA and WNBA team in Phoenix. And he's owned them for, at that time last year, it was 17 years. And these were allegations of some serious, serious workplace conduct that he had done himself and allowed to happen within the organization. And this was definitely in the wake of a lot of these articles that were coming out and kind of digging up what was actually happening in some of some pro sports organizations. We've been following it with the Washington Commanders and what's happening with Dan Snyder. So what happened? What are these allegations? So Robert Sarver was accused of making, you know, sexual advances, sexual comments to his employees using, you know, racial and gender-based biases towards his employees. And what happened from that article was they hired the law firm of Wachtell 
Lipton, Rosen, and Katz to conduct an independent investigation on behalf of the NBA and digging into the Phoenix Suns organization regarding Robert Sarver and what happened. And Dan, I know you read the full report, but I'll give you some bullet points on, on what you what some of you might have read on the ESPN articles and, and what's coming out uh, from this. But the main points here is that it starts off, the, the, the beginning of the investigation starts off, his conduct clearly violated workplace standards. They said that he used the N-word multiple times in talking with employees. A lot of inequitable conduct was found towards female employees, which include sexual related comments, and that he engaged and encouraged this demeaning and harsh treatment of employees, which was cursing at them, yelling at them. However, I think what was interesting too, and, and again, I, Dan, I'll kick it to you after this, they noted specifically that they didn't find any of the actions that Sarver did were racial or gender based. So the whole investigation and report was talking about how a lot of these were racial comments and misogyny and gender-based issues, but they ultimately found that none of his actions were an animus towards them. So Dan, what is your take on this? To your last point, Mike, I don't, me personally, I hope this is not controversial. I don't care if something is racially motivated or gender motivated, if you do or say something that someone finds offensive, that's subjectively offensive, right? You know, the, the report came out that Robert Sarver used the N-word five times in, I guess, retelling a story that someone else was saying. And me personally, I don't really care if that's racially motiv motivated or not. You still can't say or do certain things. And then there's lewd comments about female employees and there's um, inappropriate, which I mean, I, I know what it was, at least one of them, inappropriate physical contact towards male employees. So to me, Mike, you know, you know, I like to drop in some legal terms when I can for our lawyers and law students. It reminds me of a term that I first learned in law school, this term strict liability. If you do something right uh, in the law, you know, either in civil law or criminal law, if you do something like I think one of them was like dynamite, right? If you have like a stick of dynamite and it blows off, like it doesn't really matter what your intent was you're going to get in trouble for it, right? That's just one of one of the nature of the beast. Here, right, if you say the N-word multiple times and there are multiple complaints about you, multiple complaints from female employees and male employees about your comments, about your actions, like, I don't really care what the intent is, right? So maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm old school. Like, I don't really care what the intent is. Now, um, there was an incident which maybe sounds like, uh, like something that would happen at a fraternity, but like there's a story of someone, Robert Sarver, the owner of a team, you know, multi-billionaire pantsing somebody, like pantsing a male employee in front of like other staff. So that's not conduct that's becoming of an owner. Maybe it's, I don't know, not, not nearly to the same level as, as saying the N-word or something like that, but like it's just conduct that's unbecoming of an owner. So, you know, I, I'm fine with the one-year suspension. I know seemingly the commentary was like, this is similar to Snyder. He's checking a lot of these boxes, like racial comments, physically, you know, comments that are, are, you know, physically uncomfortable, vocal comments that are unwanted. Let's dig into that first too. So yeah. what, what's the punishment here, right? You said, you just alluded to it, the one-year suspension. So what, what has come out today is that after the investigation has been completed, the NBA has officially implemented the punishment, which was one-year suspension from all Suns and Mercury's games, events, businesses. He can't represent the team, whether it's in a private function or a public function. He can't be at the stadium. He can't go to games. He can't go to events. And he's also been fined $10 million, which, by the way, that's the max amount that's permitted by the NBA rules. And they, the NBA stated that they were going to donate those funds to 
race and gender-based issues. Again, even though this report said that they were not racial or gender-based, and I, I don't understand why they even included that, but that's where they said that the money was going to go to. And during his suspension, they, they listed out kind of bullet points that Sarver's not allowed to do. And I kind of just alluded to that. So we can't go to any facility, any office, the arena, the practice facility. He can't attend or participate in any games, practices, or business partner activities. So he's been removed as, you know, effectively from that ownership role. And we see, and you just alluded to that too. That's exactly what we saw with Dan Snyder, where his wife kind of took over the business of the team and he can't have any involvement in the operations of of either of those teams. So Dan, I I know a big part of this as well from this investigation was it wasn't just his conduct, but it was actually the conduct of the entire organization in allowing this to happen. And that directly stems from HR and the investigation alludes to the HR actions. There's a line in the report and uh, the the actual like ESPN article from a year ago says more, but here's a line from the NBA's report. The investigation also condu- also concluded that the Sun's human resources function was historically ineffective and not a trusted resource for employees who were subjected to acts of workplace misconduct. So, you know, that's an interesting line and you really kind of have to unpack what that is. And you read down further in the report, it required the Suns and the Mercury to set up an anonymous tip hotline in, in some way, shape or form. Then I, I remembered reading this, you know, way back when, and if people can find our, our podcast in the archives, you know, Mike, at the end of the day, what was happening is people were putting their notice in and they would do their exit interviews. And this is according to the report by Baxter Holmes over at ESPN. I reached out to him to try to get him on the pod. We'll, we'll see if he can come on or he might just be too swamped with him and Woj doing uh, the media tour now. But, you know, it, it essentially said people would put their notice in and complain about all these different forms of misconduct and that these employees would basically be given NDAs, could be given settlement money, and no one would solve the problem. They would just be basically paid to go away. So HR didn't do anything other than, in, in a sense, Mike, similar to our Deshaun Watson conversation once upon a time, like Texans didn't solve the problem. They just gave Deshaun Watson an NDA and made the problem go away in some way, shape, or form. And that's not solving it. That's you know putting skeletons in the closet and burying them and burying them until they explode. I saw a former Suns employee speak out. Actually, you know, this past week, just timing was coincidental, that the NBA essentially should be ashamed that they haven't done anything with the Suns. And the tweet picked up a lot of traction. You know, and obviously this report had been being worked on for a while. So Wachtel is the law firm on the case. Mike, that would be um, an interesting job to be the law firm on the case investigating the sons, right? Because you have to figure out what you should and shouldn't say, where the line is and what you should divulge. Like Mike, the ESPN article, they spoke with 70 former employees. And what comes out today is that they spoke with 300 plus employees and reviewed over 80,000 pieces of documentary evidence. So, you know, the full report uh, is available for anyone that wants to find it. It's 40 plus pages and the NBA didn't hold back. So we can spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about how the NFL is protecting Dan Snyder. But again, when it comes to the NBA, Adam Silver has a pretty good track record. When he sees something wrong, he steps up. So we can talk a lot of smack on this podcast about Manfred, about Goodell, you know, but at the end of the day, like Silver seems to be the guy that is not afraid to, to step up here. It's not just current employees, but former employees. They really went into the background of it. And if you read, now we get to, you know, what is fair and just, right? Like, is one year enough for for the actions that they found? You know, I mean, this spanned over his 17-year ownership of the team. And these are former employees that go back probably from the beginning of that 17 years. So if they've now established a pattern like this, is one year enough? I mean, they gave him the maximum fine, but he's a billionaire. So $10 million to him is very nominal. So 
one year, there's a lot of people speaking out, former employees and people who, you know, who ran, I think ESPN said that they, you know, the, the ESPN analysts who ran the last article say that, that that's not enough, that it's, it's really not enough for the acts that he did. But ultimately, I guess if, if, if you're an employee there or it's a former employee, it, it, it's enough where he's not going to be there for the next year. So you don't have to deal with what he's been doing to you and to the employees and encouraging that for the next year. And hopefully the sons actually take the steps that they say they're going to take because they are now, you know, improving their HR. And they say that moving forward, that they want to really improve their inclusivity and encourage this open, you know, open conversation, open door policy. The only thing I want to add, and then you know we can we can move on. Dan Snyder similarly was fined ten million dollars for the NFL. The only difference is no written report there. We have no idea what Dan Snyder was fined for, and we have a good indication of what uh, Robert Sarver was fined for. So the NFL can release the hashtag release the report whenever they want, but the NBA is certainly um, you know zigging where the NFL is zagging. Okay, Mike, let's do this here. We have you know piecemeal updates on the Major League Baseball front. Taryn on the last episode, he asked me candidly. Do I think that Major League Baseball is going to accept the minor league baseball's advances to, you know, voluntarily accept their advances to become their own union? And I said, I'm not sure. Stranger things have happened. Major League Baseball fought the payment to minor leaguers for years and years and years. But 2022, so maybe Manfred wants to avoid a PR mishap and just accept it. So I didn't really I didn't really have a strong stance one way or the other. And then uh, we have an update. Maybe to the surprise of some, Major League Baseball is going to voluntarily accept these unionization efforts. So Mike, what is the latest on the minor league front? This is something that, you know, we've been following. We, we've had so many guests on, we've had Evan Drellick come on uh, from the athletic who, if you haven't read his article about the updates of the MILB and the unionization and MLBPA, I would highly suggest going over to the athletic and reading some of his articles. We've had Jim Quinn to talk about his lawsuit regarding the antitrust violation. It regards the antitrust exemption and the you know, 40 minor league baseball teams that were cut last year and and trying to get this carve out for these minor league baseball players. So we've been we've been covering and circling this. So this is big news. I mean, if you want to form a union, there's two ways. And minor league baseball players and, and the Major League Baseball Players Association has attempted to start to do the first way, which was you need 30% of your players, 30% of your employees, so 30% of the minor league players to sign a petition in favor of a union. And then the NLRB holds an election. And then if the majority in that election vote to choose a union, the board will certify them to be a union in terms of collective bargaining. The second, which is what the what Major League Baseball has done right now, is Major League Baseball, as the employer, can choose to voluntarily recognize the union based upon their own investigation or evidence that a majority of their players, of their employees being the minor league players, want a union. So Major League Baseball has done that. They have voluntarily, they've chosen to voluntarily recognize minor league baseball players to be a part of the union, which would be the Major League Baseball Players Association. And reports are showing that minor league baseball players are in favor of using 
the Major League Baseball Players Association to be their negotiating force, their seat at the table for the next collective bargaining agreement, which would be the 2023 season. That is the, the next um, the next season that the CBA is negotiated for. So I think all of them want to get this done in terms of, of that next season for the 2023. I think what's interesting here is, again, I highly suggest everyone to go read Evan Drellick, friend of the pod, to go read his articles, but he he hits on some, some key impacts here, right? You have the antitrust exemption that's kind of still there. Congress has talked about conducting a judiciary hearing on whether or not they should look into creating federal legislation to remove that federal that uh, antitrust exemption, which is well over 100 years at this point, uh, the federal baseball case. And, you know, whether or not they they do a carve out for minor league baseball players, similar to the, flood, the, the Curt Flood Act, where, you know, free agency was, was initially carved out. So, you still have that exemption that kind of sits there. Now, do minor league baseball players still have that allegation of antitrust violations now that they actually have a seat at the table? No, I don't think so. So what we have here now is this minor league baseball players would actually be able to collectively bargain for their rights, for their work conditions. Another issue that Drellick pointed out, which I think is a, an interesting one, is the Dominican Summer League. They don't, you know, they're not initially automatically included in this bargaining unit. So what we have here is major league baseball players saying that they'll, they intend to, you know, bargain over their conditions, but it's not yet determined how that's going to fit into the CBA. Mike, so we're, we're going to keep an eye on it. I don't really have that much to add. You know, the only thing I will say, it's great. You know, I think it's fantastic that minor leaguers are getting in the right and going to get paid a fair wage. There is going to be some ramifications. So, Mike, as you mentioned, there is a lawsuit right now about the retraction of certain minor league teams that uh, is alleged to have been violative of, of antitrust law. It's our friend Jim Quinn with that lawsuit. And we'll see. I mean, they're, they're from a dollars and cents standpoint, it would be odd if there were no other ramifications from this, but we'll keep an eye on it. Obviously, you know, between Evan and maybe we'll have Evan back on soon, but story that's, that's been on my radar and one that, you know, obviously going to keep our tabs in. Okay. Last one, before we move over to the Luca lawsuit, Mike, I have an announcement. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. New sponsor of the podcast. Who is it? Sponsor is one of our friends in the great state of Nebraska, the law firm of Orr, Horgan and Flengy. Friend of mine, Tom Horgan has been a longtime listener of the podcast big fan of all things Nebraska, reached out to me one day and said, hey, you guys have a lot of Nebraska audience? I'm like, we do. And he's like, well, we just opened up a law firm in the great state of Nebraska. Would it be uh, okay if maybe we did some like sponsorship and partnership? And I'm like, Tom, that would be a great idea because I love the great state of Nebraska. And you guys are helping athletes in the NIL space. Tom is a athlete agent, same with his partner, Connor Orr. And I'm like, would you want me guys to plug your law firm? And he's like, yeah, is that okay? And I'm like, of course it's okay. We make the rules here. So this segment, we're going to do it for a couple months. So the, the law firm again is Orr, Horgan, and Flengy. Yeah, we're going to be sponsoring a college sports segment. It could be NIL, could be conference realignment. It could be some uh, coach buyout issues. So Mike, that takes us to our first story of this week. You ready for this? I'm ready. Where does this story take us? Coincidentally, and I did not plan this, to the great state of Nebraska. So for those that are listening and they're like, why is Dan obsessed with the state of Nebraska? It's a very, very long story. Uh, we did a lot of, uh, we dedicated a lot of airtime, a lot of tweets to the lawsuit between Nebraska and the Big Ten, or I want to say Nebraska players in the Big Ten. And we were like the only media outlet that was covering this lawsuit, which was a very important lawsuit, which I do believed saved the Big Ten football season, which then led to saving the Pac-12 season. I personally believe that, but story for another day. And Nebraska was really into um, our coverage of the case. So picked up a lot of followers in Nebraska. And then, um, you know, as 
normal things happen. I was uh, converted to Nebraska fandom on Twitter. It happens all the time. But, you know, I've become kind of a Nebraska fan in all of this. Nebraska, not a good start to the college football season. Very high hopes. They've opened every game this season. I, I know this because I bet on every game as at least a minus 13 favorite. So it's a two touchdown favorite. Mike, despite being a heavy favorite in all of those games, they lost to Northwestern in Dublin, Ireland, the home opener, week zero. Everyone watched it. Barstool, everyone had their jokes at Nebraska's expense. The next week, okay, they play a get right game. It's Scott Frost, right? The head coach of the team, and we'll get into Frost in a minute. They uh, are a 28 point favorite to North Dakota, barely survived North Dakota. And the next week, okay, 23 point favorite to Georgia Southern. Got to win this one, right? No, they lose to Georgia Southern. So Scott Frost has been with the team. He was the former player. He played with the team during the glory years way back when. He's been with the team for five years. Nebraska paid a total contribution. We're going to get into it of $40 million to get Scott Frost services. He has been a disaster of a head 40 coach. Million. 40 million. Nebraska has shelled up. What's, what's his record in that five years? You tell me, Mike, because I feel like you have it ready to go. I don't, I don't have it. I just know it's been terrible. 16 and 31. So this is not a Nebraska segment. It is, and it is, and it isn't. Here's where the sports law part comes in. And Mike, then I'll, I'll give it to you as the, the non-biased person here. So this is year five. Uh, he was signed in 2017. 2022 was supposed to be the turnaround year. There was a lot of talk he was going to get fired last year. He redid his contract and he said, this is going to be the year. He opens up putrid, right? One and two should be really be three and oh, okay? And they're they're playing poorly. It's not like they're, they're playing that well. Mike, under his contract, if he had remained on staff until October 1st, his buyout would be a whopping seven and a half million dollars. Why am I mentioning that? Because they didn't wait till August, till October 1st. They fired him this past week in the month of September. They will pay Mike him $15 million. They basically had to shout an additional $7.5 million because they wanted to get rid of him this week instead of waiting another three weeks. I can't make sense of that. Mike, I'll, I'll let you give your guesses. I can't make sense of that. The only reason I can think of of why they fired him before October 1st is maybe they fired him with cause. I don't know if that's actually been established yet of the reason for his termination besides the, obviously, the obvious part is that, that they've lost two games that they should have won. But, you know, if he's fired without cause, then the before October 1st, which he was, then this old buyout is what we're talking about. So that's the 15 million. But if he was fired for cause, then who knows what the buyout would actually be? It's a good clarifying point here. Yeah, these coaching buyouts, this is a pretty lucrative profession. Friend of our friend of the show, Tom Mars, who coincidentally uh, came on with us during the Nebraska saga once upon a time. He makes his, uh, his bread, as they say, in this college coach buyout space. It's a very lucrative space. There's a lot of schools paying coaches that aren't with the team anymore. So you can talk about Brett Bielema uh, over at Arkansas. There's a number of these famous sports lawsuits, you know, that are in our vernacular, coaches getting bought out. So read the fine print of these contracts. So when there's a very big deal that's signed, just know that some very complex buyouts at the back end. So I just did um, my class on Monday. It was solely dedicated to the NIL era. And I had um, A.T., uh, who you know uh, from Villanova, uh, Arun uh, Thatakara. I used to call him Arun Thatakara, but Thatakara. He uh, is now at Excel Sports Management. He is the NIL legal coordinator. There's a whole career that that uh, Arun and, you know, A.T. has obviously carved out for himself. So, yeah, uh, listen to us long enough. We'll point you in the directions of where you should be looking in terms of jobs. We're going to do this uh, at least once a week. But, again, the law firm Orr, Horgan, and Flengy, uh, our friends uh, Connor Orr, Tom Horgan. Uh, Tom Horgan is a Nebraska guy. He went to New York for a little bit and then uh, back to Nebraska. So 
Tom and I have a lot of mutual friends, certainly happy to help out his law firm. So those guys started a law firm in Nebraska. Our friend uh, Matt Timpanic started his law firm over in Florida. So listen, you don't come for us for sports advice as well. You come to us just, you know, for general legal advice and maybe some sports stuff. With that said, let us move over to our final topic. I sat down with Josh Gerben. He's the sports trademark attorney. He's over on social media at Josh Gerben. I mean, there's this really interesting lawsuit. I'm not going to bury it here. But Luka Doncic, one of the top players in the NBA, pretty young guy, is basically embroiled in a lawsuit with his mother. It's a very complex IP case. I got a lot of DMs. Can we break this up down on the podcast? I said, 100% we can. And I knew Josh would be the guy. And then I looked over at Josh's feed and he had uh, you know, been on top of it with his own thread. So if you want more, check out Josh's feed. He breaks it down in, in the way only Josh can. And uh, yeah, Josh is fantastic on the podcast. Without further ado, let us kick it over to Josh Gerben. Josh, welcome back to Conduct Detrimental. How are you? Doing great, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. So this is a little bit of sports law nerddom, but I was teaching my class uh, last night. And I we were talking about this uh, Luka Doncic case a little bit. And I said, like, you know, for anyone that's curious and wants to learn more, I'm going to have Josh Gerben on the podcast. I heard like two or three little like nerdy noises in the back. And I'm like, those are my people. They, right. Those are my Twitter people. They know. I'm not sure. I think last time we had you, I was, we were probably talking about the Cleveland Guardians trademark saga. So happy to have you back on. And I saw you were on top of this Luka story and figured uh, you'd be the, the perfect person to come and explain this crazy son mother battle. Uh, so I don't know. Where, where do you want to take us? Yeah. I mean, this is a first. I mean, it's a first for me to ever see a son try to cancel a trademark registration owned by his mom. And 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 that's, I think, you know, the headline here is that Luca Duncic's mom, you filed, she has like a dozen trademarks registered around his name and likeness in the European Union and here in the United States. And what appears to have happened is that Luca filed his own trademark for his name last year. And that application got refused because of one of these registrations that his mom owned. And what would normally happen in that situation is that Luca and his mom will get together and figure out, okay, well, we need to have, you know, my company own the trademarks now and not you, my mom personally. And they'd figure that all out. And you can, you know, file what's called a trademark assignment, transfer the ownership, get everything squared away. Well, that appears not to have happened because Luca goes and files a petition for cancellation, which in the trademark world, it's basically a way to cancel an existing registration on some grounds that you may have. So he files this petition for cancellation against his mom's registration on his name. And that's just wildly surprising uh, because it would indicate that they weren't able to work something out between the two of them. Okay, so let's let's pause here for a second. This was, um, I don't know, we're getting in the weeds of Lucasms, and I think we should start first. Josh, I saw your story on this. Uh, there was different postings that had the story with what featured pictures of Luca's mom next to her. And I'm like, Luca's mom looks very young. I did some research and some, some homework here in the legal podcast. Luca's mom is 48. Luca is 23. So I, you know, I think that's, that's part of it. We're trying to figure out where there's the falling out. It's additional research. I can't find any stories of them having a falling out with one another other than this story. In addition to that, I think maybe the, the baseline level that people had questions, Luca Doncic seven, I'm like, okay, I see that Luca's Twitter handle is, you know, is, Luca Seven Doncic, the trademark that is owned by his mom is for Luca Doncic Seven. So I know Luca. Maybe uh, maybe back in the day, I knew what jersey numbers everybody had. Luca, for people that don't know, wears the number seventy-seven. So I mean, I, we can start here. Is there a reason, as far as you know, Josh, that the trademark initially is filed for Luca Doncic Seven? Right, that's the initial trademark owned by mom. The initial trademark owned by mom is not Luca Doncic. Close quote. It's not Luka Doncic 77. 
it's Luka Doncic seven. So I don't know. Is there? I mean, I can explain why. I mean, the, the number seven is trademark, but why is the number Luka Doncic seven holding up the trademark for Luka Doncic, right? Or Luka Doncic seventy-seven? Why is it holding that up? Oh, sure. Great question. So basically, when the USPTO examines any new application, they are comparing it against anything that already exists, and the question that the examiner will answer is whether or not a consumer might be confused between who owns the different trademarks, right? So if the only difference between these trademarks is the number seven, they're going to be considered substantially similar in the eyes of any examiner. And that's what will draw the refusal. See, and then, then we can get into the weeds here. Cause I, you know, I was trying to do some research, figure out why the number seven, like why 77, it looks like Luca growing up, his favorite number was seven. And then right. he tried to play, or, he, you know, he's obviously played on the Slovenian national team. It was a player that had the number seven. So Luca, I guess, loved seven so much. He jumped over to the number 77. And then when he was drafted by the Mavericks, they had a player at the time that was playing under the number seven. So again, he switched to 77. But when Luca, you know, his last pro team he played for before he went to the NBA was Real Madrid. He played under the number seven. So Luca seemingly has always had the jersey number that's seven or 77. The question that I'm, I'm having trouble getting to, right? Obviously, the, again, the trademark in dispute that is owned by mom is Luka Doncic 7. And Luka wants to trademark Luka Doncic, wants to trademark his own name. You know, this is, man, I don't know if you, if you, you would know this answer, but it seems odd that the first trademark that was filed for by either mom or Luka is Luka Doncic and then the number 7. Wouldn't it just have been easier to just file the trademark for Luka Doncic, right? Doesn't that, doesn't that solve a lot of problems? <laughs> you would think it would have been, you know, I think one of the things that you see in a case like this is that there wasn't any good legal advice being provided early on, right? What appears to have happened, and of course, this is speculation to an extent, is that Luca's mom went out and filed a series of applications. So it's not only the, the, the trademark that we're talking about here, she actually filed 12 trademark applications between the European Union and the US, and they were for a variety of different things. For example, she filed trademarks for LD77. She filed trademarks for Luca77, Luca Magic77. So there was a variety of different things that she filed for, basically with the idea that they were going to be selling products, you know, and merchandising things using Luca's likeness and these trademarks. And so the Luca Duncic 7 mark was filed as a logo that looks like had been developed and was potentially going to be used on merchandise. And that's likely why that got filed. But I completely agree with you, Dan, that if I were filing these trademark applications for Luca, we would have gone after just his name in, in one of these filings for sure. And I just think the reason they didn't do that is in all likelihood, they weren't really getting good legal advice, you know, early on, which is very common for athletes because they don't have the resources yet. You know, they're getting things underway. There's a lot of people in their ear and maybe they're just making some filings without without having the right legal advice. What period of time is mom filing all these these filings in the in the European Union? What is this like? Yeah, so this started back in 2015. Uh, was the very first one. And then that continued up and through 2020. So she made filings in 2015, 2018, 2019 and 2020. And they're all with some variation of the number 77 or 7. Interesting. So Lucas drafted in 2018 as people know is very controversial trade that'll go down in our history book similar to you know, the Antoine Jameson, Vince Carter trade, 
uh, or any type of superstars being traded for one another. You know, you had the Trey Young and Luca deal. We'll go down the history books. who will be the better player. We'll, we'll see. What I found interesting is that these are disputes, you know, where Luca, I think, I think the one in dispute, Luca Doncic 7, right? With that's filed by the USPTO. That's in November of 2018. Yes, that's correct. That's the one under dispute. I mean, so the NBA draft 2018 is held in June. So they're filing a trademark for Luka Doncic 7 at a time where he's conceivably picked out his Mavericks number. He plays under 77. So I don't know, seemingly a lot of weird issues. Let's stick with this issue between, you know, issue between mom and son, which in my practice, sometimes there's a dispute between family members. I've had the fortune or misfortune of dealing with family law cases, with uh, probate cases. So it tends to be fighting between family members. I don't I mean, maybe someone can yell at me after this. I'm not remembering one. I don't remember a, a public spat like this between mother and son. So again, I, I went through the Google hits. I don't see an issue between Luca and his mom. I don't I don't see anything of the sort, but- We didn't I, see it either. Yeah. Yeah. I, but I think if you have a lawsuit like this, and I'm reading, and Josh, for people that haven't seen, you have a, a Twitter thread that you put out that I think kind of set off the firestorm of our sports law people being aware of this. But you write, you know, as Luca got older, he opened up his own company. And they filed for this, quote, Luka Doncic trademark. And it was denied because of this similar trademark owned by mom. And you write, quote, normally this is when Luka's mom should have willingly transferred the ownership of Luka's trademark to his company. It appears that she refused to transfer the rights, leaving Luka with the option to to commence, um, you know, some type of filings. Now, here's the the million-dollar question. Is Luca's mom earning money off of these marks right now? That is the million dollar question. And it does not appear that she is because one of the claims in this cancellation action and the claim that I actually think has the best chance of succeeding for Luca is that his mom is not actually using the trademarks at the moment. She has no licensees and she's not selling any goods using the trademarks. And under US law, that's a requirement to maintain a trademark registration. You have to use it or you lose it. That's a basic principle of trademark law in the United States. And from what the you know from everything that is said in the complaint from Lucas' side, she's not using it, and and I would I would tend to believe that's likely the truth. Although of course she's going to have an opportunity to to file an answer. See what's interesting is like okay, let's say she was making a lot of money off this, and she could say in theory like, hey Luca, like I'm I'm opposing this because or I'm not transferring this to you, I'm not consenting because we I'm making a lot of money off this. So let's figure out how to work together. If someone is not conceivably putting it into commercial use, as you point out, you know, I don't know, maybe this is, like, I don't, this is, again, not an issue, not a podcast where we talk about family issues that much, but I know it seems to be out of spite that she wouldn't be consenting to giving this over. And then, you know, Josh, as you and I spoke about on the Cleveland Guardians issue once upon a time, you know, I've been around the block dealing with settlements and whatnot. This seems to probably be a case where she said, I'll transfer this to you. And again, I don't have any reporting on this, just my legal spider sense, I'll consent to giving this to you if you pay me X amount of dollars, right? That's usually possible. what would happen to the point that you just raised, right? Luca's probably on their side like, well, mom, I don't want to pay you any money. I will win this case. So we could do this the easy way or the hard way. You could just give it to me or we can make this really ugly. So, I mean, that, that seemed, I mean, I think that's a fair reading of, of what likely happened here. I mean, I, I certainly think that's obviously a possibility. And it's so weird because in most cases when you see, and, and I mean, I think this is true in the NBA and probably a lot of sports is that sons and moms tend to have a really unique bond and, and moms that have helped sons along, normally the sons turn around and help the mom out. And, and, and I'm not saying that that's not happening here in any way, but they're, to have this kind of significant falling out where all of a sudden there's a battle over a trademark registration, especially quite frankly, I think if Luca's mom was getting good legal advice, you know, she's being told that this is going to be a really hard case to win. Why are we having this public dispute? Why are we not able to get this worked out? And that is the question, you know, of the day, basically. 
So you you have in your thread, and you obviously pointed out here that Luca's going to say number one, she abandoned it because she has not put into commercial use really since 2018, and number two, that Luca has removed all consent for the use of the trademark. You know, I think one or two might get you to the intended result. How did how did Luca withdraw his consent? Does he does he give any details as to that? He does not. And this is actually a really interesting point of this case. And I think one that has implications beyond it, which is that if somebody is going to register a trademark for another person's name and that other person's still alive, you actually have to get a written consent from that alive person to register their name or their likeness. So in this case, when Luca's mom originally filed the trademark applications, she submitted a consent from Luca himself signing the saying, yes, I'm okay with my mom owning this trademark that includes my name. And in this petition for cancellation, he's saying that he has revoked that consent. I am personally not aware of, and I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I'm personally not aware of any case that talks about the revocation of a consent from a minor child that was made at the time by a minor child to then a child that's older. And so you start to think about, wait a second, can that even be done? Can Luca actually revoke his consent? And that's why I say that's not probably the best claim here. I mean, I think that's a claim and there's no question that that would be an interesting claim to see kind of litigated. But I don't think there's a lot of case law out there that supports the position that you can just revoke a consent that you've once given. See, this is interesting. I mean, now I'm looking closer at this petition. It says, by letter to the registrant dated July 23rd, 2021, Don should specifically and expressly revoke the consent effective immediately. So, you know, not that you and I are intending to get into the weeds of this family dispute, but whatever this was seemingly going has on. existed yep. for a year plus, July 23rd of 2021. Yeah, that's a great point, Dan. That that definitely indicates this has been going on for a while. There's no question. You know, and not, uh, I think last time we were on, I was trying to have you predict what country the Guardian's trademark uh, was filed in. <laughs> right. I think you were pretty close. What, what's your prediction here? You think Luca Luca wins this thing? I definitely think Luca wins this thing. I think he's got a number of grounds and, and the best one being that his mom doesn't appear to be making commercial use of the trademark at the moment. And especially because the trademark in question, the trademark registration in question is this particular logo of his name with the number seven. So keep in mind, the registration that his mom owns isn't just on his name, as you were pointing out earlier. She could have just filed for his name, and that would have made it probably a lot more difficult for him to win this case in a sense, because she could have made use of the trademark, perhaps in a way that would have been defensible. But here it's a very specific logo that probably isn't being used anywhere and doesn't, quite frankly, probably have a lot of value. So unless she can pull some use out of her hat, meaning that she's been selling goods somehow in the United States, I think she's going to have a really difficult time maintaining this registration, winning this case. Very interesting. So I listen, you're, you're the expert here. I have, I have no reason to think that you are wrong. I, I find it odd that no one picked up on the spat, um, which obviously wasn't public until recently. But so just so people don't think we're you know pushing and, and making light of kind of family, we'll say spats between one another. Josh, her sources, you you have a number of children in the Gervin household. <laughs> I have four of them. Okay. Yes, I, I have. I have two. What's your oldest? Your oldest is like 10. maybe. My oldest is nine. It's a girl. So my daughter is nine. And then I have three boys who are uh, seven, four, and we have a newborn uh, just born in May. Congrats. Congrats. Thank um, you. I figured in our in our remaining time, you know, we could talk about we're also this is a podcast about news. It's about career advice. It's about life advice. If I'm a I'm a father of two. I have two girls and you got you got some boys, you got some girls, you got them all over the spectrum. Um, <laughs> I'll lead with this, right? Sometimes, you know, when my kids are three and one, so certainly I'm not going to have any disputes at the USPTO's office, at least at least at this stage. I have a good story for you, Josh. You ready for this? I'm ready. So my three-year-old, and hopefully, you know, when she's old enough to listen to podcasts, she'll find this and then she'll scream at me. Right. But uh, <laughs> she came home from school one day very upset because someone, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be very delicate on the wording here, but 
well, you're, you're going through various stages of potty training, you know, various stages sure. of independence. And I think someone said something to her along the lines of, you know, when you went to the bathroom, it smells really bad. So she was very upset that someone said that she smelled bad or that what she did smell bad. Of course. So, you know, I think I was being a good father. And I said, you know, Dylan, that's not true. When you go to the bathroom, it smells like flowers. So don't let anybody tell you that. <laughs> um, so I was very clear that it smells like flowers. And I didn't, I didn't tell mom that. I didn't tell anybody that. I just said it in passing. Don't let anybody tell you that it smells bad. It smells like flowers. So we got a call home from school about a week ago. And teacher called and said, I just want to tell you what happened at school today. We had some, something of a, an interesting incident. And I'm like, oh, okay. What Uh-oh. did she do? She bite someone. She punched someone. Right. Um, and uh, the teacher starts laughing and she said, whoever taught her, when now Dylan goes to the bathroom, she leaves the bathroom and says, I made it smell like flowers. So, um, <laughs> I think it was parenting 101. I think that, that is, that is, I mean, it, you have to be really careful about what your kids pick up. And, and I mean, for better or for worse, you know, I have, I have, so I have boys, you know, my, my daughter, you know, is nine and, and, and I think I've did, you know, I've done a pretty good job so far with her. The boys are a lot more rambunctious you find. Right. And, and so the seven and the four-year-old, you know, I'll have out, we'll be throwing footballs around, be outside playing and everything else. And they'll say to me, you know, dad, I got to go to the bathroom. And my response is, well, there's a tree right over there. And they'll, and, and you know, when I first started this, they were like, you can't do that. I'm like, you could totally do that. And, and then, so, you know, I had them, you know, basically peeing in the yard and then my wife took them out one day and they started to do that. And she was like, what on earth are you doing? You can't, you know? So she was really mad at me for teaching them this. The trouble is, like you said, is that they'll be like at a friend's house and then all of a sudden they'll just, you know, drop trowel and they got to go to the bathroom and they think that that's normal. And, and so I had to basically walk that back with them a lot and say, Hey, look, we can do this at home. Like you just can't do this in public or when you're at a friend's house. And I still, with my four-year-old, he still doesn't quite get that. So we'll be somewhere where he's on grass and he got to go, if he has to go to the bathroom, it just, it just starts happening. Don't even know it. You turn around and there he is going. If you you want to feel better, we once and I were driving long distance from somewhere and you know, Dylan said you need to go potty. So Went out, did a little squat on the side of the road, whatever, no issues, all good. We were at a friend's house. That friend shall remain nameless. And uh, she goes, Daddy, can I squat here? And I'm like, no, Dylan, you should not (laughs) squat here. But yes, trials and tribulations. So, you know, the the best to Luca and his mother figuring out, I'm sure she changed his diapers once upon a time. Maybe it's a little bump in the road, but, you know, we call it like we see it. I think, Josh, if our kids asked us to get their trademark back, I would think that you and I would give it back. I'm not quite sure what's happening here, but... I think when you're a parent of young kids, it's hard to imagine a situation where you would be in a legal dispute with a child. I mean, that, you know, you love them so much and they're so innocent and the questions are so, you know, uh, almost hilarious and the issues are what they are. Obviously, I've talked to parents that have older kids and they say, you know, bigger kids, bigger problems. And I mean, you know, and it is one of those things where you just and like you said, unfortunately, if you've seen family disputes in the law and, you know, in in your practice, you kind of know that things can go sideways. And it just yeah, you would like you said, you would you would think that they could work it out and you'd hope that they can. And it's it's somewhat sad that it's come to this. But it yeah, it also is, you know, one of those really interesting sports stories now. Josh, as you said, bigger kids, bigger problems. Uh, and as it was once said, mo money, mo problems. Now, if that is true too. Very, and very- mo money, you got bigger <laughs> and mo problems. Josh, always enjoy having you on the podcast. Uh, everybody check out Josh's social media at Josh Gerben. He's one of the top follows. He posts all thing intellectual property, but specifically for our show, he's very heavy into the sports IP space. Josh, always a pleasure having you on. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. Appreciate it. So that was Josh Gerben. You can find him on social media at 
Josh Gerben, G-E-R-B-E-N. Yeah, so we thought it only appropriate, right? We're going to talk about Luca and his mom getting into fights. We have to show we are a family-friendly show. We're going to talk about stories with our kids, you know, behaving in a, in a nice way. Maybe maybe on a not-so-nice way sometimes, but maybe our kids at some point will sue us because they heard this podcast, but that's like another 10 years down the road. But, you know, we come for uh, parenting advice, job advice, everything and everything here on the Sports Law Podcast. Mike, anything to add before we put this episode officially in the books? I do want to give a what to watch for. There's some interesting fights that are being announced here. Uh, Tyson Fury might have a fight with Anthony Joshua and the, the heavyweight for boxing. We, we also have a potential boxing with, I know a lot of people don't like him, but Jake Paul with Anderson Silva, that's going to be lined up. So we have some interesting things to watch uh, coming forward in the next you know couple of months, maybe end of the year. I have one recommendation if I guess we're sneaking into what to watch for. I watch really every 30 for 30. I watch every sports documentary. One came out on ESPN this week that, uh, I don't know, I figured I would give it a shot. I'll give you two, Mike. Ready? One is called The Fate of a Game. It is the story of the PLL, how Paul Rabel basically created a lacrosse league from scratch. Very interesting. If you're into admin law or like kind of corporations law, uh, breach of contract laws, it's a lot of fun legal stuff in there. And then, Mike, I was kind of perusing around, you know, the wee hours of Sunday morning because I'm a crazy person. I don't really sleep. I found a, a documentary on ESPN called Breakaway. It's the story of Maya Moore. It's kind of like Maya Moore is a famous WNBA player. She retired very early on. She's won uh, you know, Olympic championships. She has won WNBA championships. She retired again, kind of, you know, in the middle of her prime. And everyone's like, why did she retire? She retired to basically, I mean, chase other interests, but one of them was kind of a version of like her version of like the Innocence Project and get someone that was wrongfully convicted out of prison. So I didn't know what I was signing up for. I'm just like Maya Moore, Innocence Project. Like, okay, I'm into this. And it was fantastic. It was really good. It's called Breakaway. If you're into cold cases and you're into sports law, I don't know, it's kind of a nice, happy marriage. Mike, I think we're good, right? Anything else? No, I think we're good. Okay, so that'll do it for this week. Myself, uh, for Dan Wallach, the Conduct Detrimental family, we will see you next time on another episode of Conduct Detrimental. 